Hello and welcome back. Today we have a special podcast as we are speaking with heads of forest management around the globe to celebrate International Day of Forests. To begin, I'm joined by the hero Wijadasa from BirdLife Asia, who is speaking with us about his work as a botanist and forest manager across many regions. Lahiro and I discuss a range of topics, including habitat loss, farming cultures, forest protection, carbon credits, and what kind of future we are facing. If you like this episode and would like to follow more of Lahiro's work, please follow the links in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome back to Restore Our Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. And here to celebrate uh, World's Day of Forests, I'm here joined by Lahiro Wajadesa from BirdLife Asia. Good morning. Oh, sorry, I should say good afternoon, uh, Lahiro, and welcome. Um, how are you good today? Afternoon. Good. It's a lovely day out here in Singapore. Fantastic. All right. So to kick things off, Lahiro, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what it is the, the work that you do? All right. Thanks, Jack. I'm, uh, so I'm the Asia Forest Coordinator for BirdLife International. Uh, and in BirdLife, what I really do is I, I work with all the local partners in the countries that we have, we work with for, for, for forest conservation issues. And it's not just forest conservation, but it's community work, restoration, um, anything related to forest. That's what I do. My background is I've, I've worked across Southeast Asia in restoration, conservation, and, and as a botanist. So I'm a trained taxonomist and I've described about 14 species of trees so far. And there's many more to do. Uh, but the, re- the role that I am in right now is actually trying to do a lot more to save these species and uh, work on the ground with our partners to achieve those goals. And as a result of saving the forest, you save the birds and the habitats and the animals and everything with it. Absolutely. Okay, so tell us about some of the places that you've worked. Oh, yeah. I've, um, I've worked all the way from South Asia all across to, to East Timor and Northern Australia and all the way in Indochina and Borneo, Sumatra, Pretty much most of our project partner countries in Asia, I, I've worked with them. Um, and it's uh, most of it has been like conservation work, working on uh, forest inventories, high conservation value forest, uh, and working with companies as well to try and help conserve their forests as a whole, in addition to just basic exploratory work, finding new species. That's okay. So now, of course, Asia is a giant continent. Okay, so at risk of diminishing some of the smaller nations, what are some of the key areas when it comes to forestry that you uh, that you work in that are real kind of sort of critical points of you know climate change and habitat loss, etc.? Um, I think that there's um, there's a bit of a dichotomy there because there are bigger countries and there are smaller countries, but then there's also within that whole landscape you get these pockets where forest is still remaining and in really good condition. And then there are those areas where they're under threat and they're being converted as we speak, or they have been converted over the last few decades. So I wouldn't draw the lines between the countries, but I mainly look at regions where there's good forests. And and especially because in Asia, we have such huge countries uh, that even within the country itself, there's differences. Um, like Like a good idea is uh, the island of Sumatra in Indonesia, where uh, the northwestern corner, which is Aceh, has uh, about 80% of its forest left, whereas the eastern coastal, coastal provinces have much less and more land use pressure on them. Um, and then like in Peninsular Malaysia, you'll have Trenganu, uh, which is on the east coast of uh, Peninsular Malaysia with uh, only about one and a half million people uh, in a state, which is about 70% forested. Um, and, and then you get Johor, which is like 30% forested, um, but a lot more people there. So you get this dichotomy of the things like the pressures of people, land use change, and forests. 
And so even within countries there, you could see, you're starting to see these differences and who you work with and, and trying to achieve those goals is, is really different in each landscape. And would you mind going into a little bit of detail of what those uh, differences are? Are they, are they cultural? Are they economic? What's the, what's the difference? I think that the, it's, a, it's a complicated thing because the, the, the differences also change over time. Um, like if you think about a place like Peninsula Malaysia, they deforested, a lot of Peninsula Malaysia was deforested during colonial times and post-colonial times. Now um, the deforestation rate has really dropped off and what you're starting to see is you're starting to see forests and you're starting to see restoration work as well. And at the same time, we're also seeing um, the populations who used to be in agriculture moving to cities, so er areas of land being abandoned. So you have this reversal where lands are also being returned back to forests as well. Um, and a good example of some an, a, of a country like that is Sri Lanka, where the deforestation happened in the 60s and earlier. And now the same thing, we are starting to see uh, a lot of the land going back to forests. And also because that conversion happened long ago into agroforests, uh, the species extinction has been very low there in Sri Lanka, that you have forests, good forests, and then you have agroforests, and you have most of the biodiversity in both landscapes. So it's kind of buffered everything. In, in Southeast Asia, we're still in that zone of actual the decade after deforestation really happened so now we're really trying to figure out okay in this now in this new agriculture landscape how do we protect biodiversity how do we how do we enhance biodiversity how do we increase productivity and how can biodiversity help so it's pretty much a good a good analogy is like europe long ago uh, they deforested long ago now we have rewilding in the uk where, where we're trying to bring stuff back again um and then but it's been a long time but in Asia, we still haven't lost, diverse, lost all the diversity yet. Um, and now with climate change and everything coming in and the carbon markets and the need for us to restore and think about food security and all this kind of balanced stuff, now we are, we are in a very exciting period, I would say, where, where all of those historic changes and the changes that we are having now and the changes we want to go into the future, we're at a very unique point where we can actually decide um, it could go any direction, I think, um, but it's a critical point for sure. Okay, and tell us a little bit more about that, that question, or the, the you know the uh, the options we have, and which what different ways we could go. Um, I do think that, like for instance, the the, the issue of monocultures that we have, uh, monocultures as a whole are pretty barren landscapes, but we are also seeing changes in agriculture productivity in these monocultures over time. Because as the nutrients in the soils get depleted or they get washed away and climate change hitting, the monocultures are going to get affected. And then we also need to have food security. Um, like, for instance, uh, a good idea is like if you think about the island of Java in Indonesia, um, it used to have a lot more paddy fields. Uh, and we used to be, there used to be a lot more rice cultivation. And the thing about the paddy fields is that in Sri Lanka also, there's a lot of paddy fields. In India and Thailand, you get paddy fields. These are pretty much wetland systems that have replaced original net natural wetlands. So the ecosystem functions of the landscapes have stayed the same. Now what's what we're seeing is a lot of these ecosystems are being changed and that's where the problem happens. Um, because when the whole ecosystem kind of changes, then we don't really know where that goes. And especially under climate change, altered, like if a, if, a, if a wetland exists in a place, it exists because those that's the ideal ecosystem for that place. If you change it to something else, it becomes uh, a problem. And I think when it comes to the rice production, again, in Java, um, I, I, as far as I know, a lot of the rice production has been stopped and they're changing to other things now. And that has a big impact on not just food security, but also ecosystem function. And also the fact that you have a lot of birds that depend on 
these habitats as well. Um, so it's so it's these changes that are happening at such a rapid pace that we are now trying to still understand. Okay, what can we do about it? How are we going to manage it? And and therein comes the opportunity. Like, and a good example is in Cambodia. We have this project called uh, ibis rice, and ibis rice is that there's this extremely endangered ibis that lives in paddy fields. Uh, and they've been able to convince the farmers to use organic farming, more environmentally friendly methods that allow them to grow the rice, but for the birds to live with them. And that it's being sold as ibis rice at a higher value. And it actually funds the conservation work. So it, for the consumer, it's not like playing a lot more, but you're having this kind of linkages that are coming up now where we're starting to see places where communities and conservation and uh, corporates in particular, because the biggest issue in conservation is actually how are you going to fund it? And how do you build sustainable financing uh, to keep whatever you're doing going? Absolutely. You mentioned there a couple of minutes ago um, monoculture and what the yeah. problems that that brings. Now, if I'm not mistaken, so that, that kind of monocultural attitude largely sort of came from the United States when um, essentially you could buy high yield one season seeds, sort of grains and these kinds of things. Um, which then meant that, you know, for example, if you're a big American farmer that you could, you know, if one year the crops failed, okay, fine, you can just pay for another set of crops um, yeah. and, you know, hopefully things will pick up. However, introducing that kind of attitude, that kind of farming culture in countries like sort of around the world, sort of poorer countries has, has different effects, um, quite infamously in, in, in India. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the effects that monocultural farming has in these sort of in poorer, poorer places. The world. Um, I think there's um, there's definitely benefits and there's also negatives because I think the the other extreme of monocultures that we talk about is we talk about permaculture, um, but there there is an extreme there. Like uh, and I, before I talk about monoculture, let's talk about a little bit about permaculture and the idea that um, it's actually trying to live a bit more sustainably. But the I the question is always, can we actually feed the billions of people on the planet using permaculture? Because permaculture, like like one of the things in 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 some of these areas, where agroforestry being done for a long time, it's 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 manpower intensive. You will always have enough food because you have so many diverse plants growing in your landscape, but you'll never have so much that you can commercially sell it to to get the additional income. So the monoculture view of okay, let's just bring that down from a diverse system into a system of just a few species, uh, one or one species in one in in, in this case is an interesting one because it can feed people, but creates this whole perverse outcomes because it destroys the ecosystems in the process of doing it. Um, I think that the, having a toned down agroforestry network is a better way of doing it. Or I think that in the future, what the world really needs to do is we need to look at a landscape level planning of how we plant monocultures, where we plant them. Like, because we're trying to get like this mix of conservation areas, agroforestry areas, and monoculture areas. And together, along with the wetland areas that are also being used, Together, you can create a, a system which is truly sustainable. And, and when I say sustainable, I mean that you're maintaining the ecosystem function and producing stuff into the long term. Uh, and the good example of that is, I would think, Sri Lanka and some parts of Thailand and Bali, where, where agriculture in the same place has been going on for a few thousands of years. Uh, and so it actually tells you that, okay, what's being created is a, sustainable, a relatively sustainable system. Um, there is, and, and by... by but, but in all these systems, one thing that is key important ingredient is fertilizer, because if you're taking out nutrients out of a system as a crop, you need to put it back. 
But if your ecosystem is functioning normally and you have these nutrients growing out and you keep on replenishing it, you're fine. So as to see it as an energy cycle with nutrients flowing through kind of stuff. And I think that we, we and, and I think that in conservation today, with the focus on working with communities, we had that unique opportunity now, along with the carbon side of stuff, to want to sequester carbon and restore ecosystems, plus work with communities, plus conserve you have this perfect formula of three things that need to come together to create that sustainability that uh, that we never ha- that we never developed because we're still very we're only a few decades into this kind of monoculture revolution kind of thing. But the the hopefully the people who are doing the monocultures will realize that okay we need to kind of think beyond this that in the next fifty years we're going to have serious climate change, serious water shortages, serious problems. What is a resilient ecosystem? Is your monoculture resilient? Can it survive? I don't think so. Um, so in that case, we need to start transitioning into this kind of sustainable, sustainable systems, whatever they may be, wherever they are, could be implemented. So do you think it's more of a more of a hybrid style rather than sort of because often you get kind of people on very much on one side or the other. You know, we should go full on GMOs, full on uh, um, monocultural, or we need something a lot more of a kind of the ancient or cultural ways like for example in Peru um where I spent much time they've got something like I mean historically they've got something like three and a half thousand different species of potato which is incredibly yeah. resilient to disease and you know a bad a bad year and that kind of thing so are, are you saying that really what we kind of need is a bit of both or and, and also you did mention um uh, permaculture now, permaculture is, is my understanding it seems a little bit more of a kind of uh quite new sort of i'm sort of trying not to say hippie but a very yeah. kind of quite a recent kind of oh let's get back to earth yeah. um but as you said it, it's almost you know it, it's it's semi-subsistence essentially but so it, but but like a la sort of middle class uh yeah. a, a little bit i get the sense of so are you so um so it's essentially a bit of a hybrid, do you think? So that yeah. we'll, we'll always have some versions of monoculture in the future. Yeah, we, we definitely need, the, if you want to feed the planet, we definitely need monocultures. Right. Uh, but then we need to actually think about the landscape level, about how do we manage these kind of monocultures. And, and I think something like permaculture, which is actually trying to do permanent agriculture and permanent culture, which is supposed to be the basis of the name, to my understanding uh, or recollection, um, it's a really good idea. It is really good, but the issue is scale. Can mm-hmm. we ever scale this up? But I think permaculture or permaculture like that context on a landscape level where monocultures are part of the mix is, is doable, is, is really doable. Like, um, like I think like in the UK, when we talk about, or even in Europe, allotments, I would think that if you actually think about it, allotments are pretty much a kind of, if you look at it on a landscape level, it is a kind of permaculture as well. Mm. Uh, if you think of it at that landscape level, that we have a small garden and we grow stuff for our own consumption. Might not be all our consumption, but a relatively significant percentage of it. And if you think about permaculture at that level, that, yeah, we have monocultures where we get our carbohydrates from, then we have, uh, um, then we have uh, the allotment to get some of your vegetables from. It kind of works out. And um, But I do... I do kind of do would like to sound a one word of caution about the historic traditional knowledge kind of stuff that because we we hear that a lot in Asia as well, people talking about traditional and historic knowledge. But the thing is that traditional and historic knowledge was also done at a time where there was a fraction of the people on a hugely forested landscape. Um, So 
um, they it can be done. Like like for instance, one 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 problems that we have in protected areas is that about indigenous rights for hunting within protected areas. And indigenous uh, hunting, when you have a huge forested landscape, then you have a sustainable hunting system. But once you've deforested like 70% of your landscape and you have just 30% left and you have a population of animals within that landscape, then if you hunt in that landscape, you're just, then it's not really sustainable at that level anymore. So it's, uh, it's, it's also that, 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 that idea that traditional knowledge is useful. We need to use it, but we need to probably calibrate it to the time that when that traditional knowledge was being used, how many people were there and how much resources were actually there. And today, how many people are there, how much resources are there. And then we can actually be able to evaluate some of this indigenous knowledge to see, okay, how much of it is really applicable or everything is applicable. And it just depends on which context, I guess. Absolutely. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times our carbon sequestration. And I know this is something that you really like to like to discuss. So do you want to sort of elaborate a little bit on um yeah. yeah, I think that there's for forests in particular in Asia um, or even around the world, we have this big opportunity right now because of the carbon, uh, because of the because of the COPs and the COP21 and all the agreements, climate agreements and everyone needing to meet their targets. There's a lot of need to buy carbon offsets or even reforest and buy carbon offsets from somewhere. The problem about carbon offsets is that you need to, at least in the forest context, it needs to come from a place where carbon could be lost. So it's like one of the things is avoided deforestation or you could have sequestration by planting. So avoided deforestation means someone was going to cut down a forest, you avoid the deforestation. So you have a carbon savings and that's a carbon credit. Um, and that could, go, that could count towards your, your either your national or it could be the national's commitments or your voluntary carbon market uh, where people are actually, the private sector actually buying carbon. The other way is of course restoration that you you carbon grows. That's in the forest sector, that's the two main areas. You can have also have in agriculture or many other areas. But the problem about this kind of method is that when we think about forests, if you want to save carbon in the ground, the first thing we should do is save the best forest that is standing. And sometimes the best forest that is standing is still not under any threat yet. That most of the time when the minute there's a threat there coming, like, like in Southeast Asia, the biggest threat to to forest is oil palm and acacia to that to those to that extent not and then many other crops and you can get thousands of dollars per hectare per year from just that production from the oil palm stuff and the acacia so if you want to avoid this you need to have some kind of income that's similar to that and while carbon in a carbon market could provide some level of income it might not provide the same amount as oil palm um, so the, the whole problem is that by the time you have deforestation there already, you're already fighting market forces that could give you more money by cutting it down and converting it to agriculture. Um, but then, so what we should do is we should go to the places where there's good standing forest, where there's no threat yet and conserve that stuff. But because there's no threat, there's no additionality yet, you can't get carbon credits so that it, it won't fall into any carbon protection program. So the, so most carbon projects will end up going to places where there's already a threat. Forest is already under threat or already degraded under threat. And you try to stop the deforestation. And when you try and stop, of course, you might be able to, or you might not be able to. If you're not able to, you've wasted money. Uh, and when it comes to restoration, we do need to restore, but maybe we should protect the intact good forest first before thinking about restoring a forest that's already degraded. Uh, therein lies the problem about the carbon markets that we it is very difficult to get money to fund protection of good standing forests or even to, to get funds for protected area management that we need 
like a lot of protected areas need a lot of help. They need finance to to because the thing is for governments in particular. Here's a if you don't have tourism on the land, here is a plot of land left aside for biodiversity purposes, for the importance for mankind and for humanity, or or even life itself. We need to protect these areas. These are kept aside as protected areas, but it doesn't make much sense for some governments to put money into it because there's not much money coming out of it. So 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 in that context, when we want if they're talking about outside entities wanting to fund conservation. Protected areas funding, funding their management, and saving forest that is standing should be the first one, as opposed to trying to get the right now. So it's a skewed up system, which which will result in forests that are current good forests that are not under threat, not receiving the kind of carbon financing they should, because they're not eligible for it, because there's no threat yet. Right. Yeah. And another problem problem there with the carbon crediting system is the fact that essentially rich countries can just pay off. Their dirty practices to poorer countries, can't they? And just basically just offset their responsibility a little bit, just using some uh, some finance. Um, but um, but uh, okay. So Lahiri, you've mentioned a couple of your projects. Tell us a little bit about the work that BirdLife's doing uh, across sort of parts of Asia and and that you're, yeah. you you have some uh, influence on. Yeah, I think that um, so BirdLife is very interesting because we work with many different partners on many different projects. So I won't be able to tell you about them all, but I'll tell you about some of them in general. Um, I did mention the Ibis Rice project in Cambodia, and we do have another site there called Lomfat, which, which we are trying to get as a carbon project as well. So we are in the early stages of developing our own carbon projects in protected areas itself to help avoid deforestation and fund the conservation work. Um, that's, that's another one. Then another example is uh, what we're doing in Indonesia with uh, uh, in, in a place called Hutan Harapan, where we're working with uh, RSPB and Burung Indonesia uh, and PT Reki, which is a company managing the area. Um, it's, a, it's a concession for 60 years um, for, for forest restoration. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenging location as well because Sumatra has had deforestation in the past, but it's much more stabilized now. And the government's also stepped in to do a lot of work in Sumatra and a lot of, across Indonesia. And in that site, one thing we are trying to do is we're trying to develop sustainable income sources to keep the protected area going as well. And so we do have communities there. And one of the projects that we have is uh, we, we're working with uh, the PT Reki is working with, which is our project partner, uh, is, a, is a rubber project, um, a sustainable forest rubber. Uh, and we're working with BMW Pirelli on that one um, right now. Um, but in addition to that, um, many other places like in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, uh, and yeah, I think mostly those, two, and India, we have uh, partners that are also working a lot on forest conservation work, but a lot of it is based on education uh, and, and working along with the government to get conservation stuff done. So you get smaller scale stuff, but really significant stuff that's also happening. And, and we also are involved in the Trillion Trees program uh, where we're trying to, I don't know that Restore Earth also, Restore Our Planet also works on that and it's, yeah, it's, still it's, very, uh, it's one of our initiatives yeah yeah, yeah. quite a quite a heavy uh, heavy hand in it yeah <laughs> very yeah. exciting and, and i think one of the first trillion tree sites that we might be working on is in philippines which is a mangrove restoration site which we're kind of working on but i think the trillion just touching on the trillion trees a little bit is i think it's a very exciting one because one of the problems that conservation has always had is people are willing to fund probably i'm willing to fund planting a tree but i don't want to pay for the manpower or I don't want to pay for the maintenance after you plant it. Uh, but in reality, it's not about planting a tree. It's about actually preparing the site, doing the groundwork, doing the socialization, planting it and maintaining it after it. 
So a program like the Trillion Trees is very good because here is an opportunity for us to bring all of that need to a, into a long-term three or five-year plan into restore a site, not just plant trees and vanish. Because if every tree that was planted for a restoration program in Asia had succeeded, we would have a few trillion trees by now. Um, but uh, the problem has been because it's not. It's about long term. It's not about. It's not about planting a tree. It's about maintaining it after it's planted. Right, and as you mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the major focuses of trillion trees is to already conserve those standing uh, forests that might not be under threat yet. Um, it's a real focus as well to sort of you know maintain that uh, that really important biodiversity. Um, exactly. Okay, so Lahiru, um, to finish this off, what would you like to see over the next sort of you know ten to twenty years? What, what excites you, and what what sort of what, what kind of anxieties do you have over the this next period? Um, I would really like to see that right now, um, my biggest fear for forests in Southeast Asia is that we might lose the species uh, completely. Extinction is something that we don't really talk about for forests and trees. Uh, it's been ignored for a long time and we probably discussed it 20 years ago, but now it's not, not being talked about. And now it's been subsumed under the carbon discussion um, where, where people talk about trees. But in reality, um, like that idea about, we talked about permaculture, we talked about agriculture and the fact that every single location will need a different answer. We need to restore a site and it might need a unique set of species. And we need to protect those species first. We need to save the building blocks and sufficient viable populations of these building blocks till a point where we really want to restore all the ecosystems because Asia and the world is still not at the point where we really want to restore the ecosystem. We want, we have an initiative where we're moving but we are not seeing the kind of ambition that we really need to change everything to a level that we will survive climate change. Uh, my view is that in, a, in the decades to come, we've gone through the 20 hottest years since records began. And as we progress through this, we will start seeing environmental changes that are in line with these changing climates. And then once we start seeing that, we're going to see a lot more ambition in us wanting to like that's why even to me, the carbon markets, I'm not sure how long they'll last because at some point in the future, we're going to really need to restore these ecosystems for human survival. Uh, and we need to save the building blocks, whether it's in intact forest standing or whether it's XC2 in Arboreta or XC2 populations because most tropical trees are recalcitrant. So the seeds, recalcitrance means that the seeds can't be stored in a seed bank because they're only viable for a fixed period of time. So the only way to save some of these species is by planting a tree and saving it. So we need to look at these, just like we have birds and we monitored birds and we look at the populations, we need to do that for plants, see where the populations are, make sure that we have the building blocks and then slowly start restoring. And at the point where we can ramp up, we need to be able to have the science ready, which we, we haven't done yet for some, most ecosystems. We don't know how to restore these ecosystems yet. Um, yeah. So and, uh, yeah, yeah. And what excites you about the, the coming years? What, what's promising? Um, I think that the carbon markets in particular are really, really promising because it's bringing a lot of, as much as I think that we should be conserving standing forests, the fact that there's so much money going into, okay, avoiding deforestation or restoring and those kind of stuff, it kickstarts something that's needed. Um, and that's exciting because we haven't had this discussion. Like when you talk about trees, we've gone through the last few decades talking about trees. No one's really listened, but now suddenly everyone's listening everyone's listening to climate change everyone's and every school every, restore. Uh, every yeah. school i said the kids the children every exactly. lessons and yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and that's exciting that like this discussion like 
that we didn't like 10 years ago it was just still in, in its infancy 20 i think it's going back to pretty much as exciting as the 70s and 80s were when it came to the environmental movement and the environmental awareness it's an awakening and the thing is that now we need to direct that awakening into the places where people can actually take action um like and and everyone wants to do something um, now we just need to give them the opportunity and what would you say that if you know ordinary people who really care about these these issues what what can they do do you think how would you advise them um i would advise them to think locally and act locally um i i do think that look globally there is a lot of things that need to be done but i think that locally that's that's where real change because it it eventually comes down to someone going around and planting something absolutely and i think that's yeah here very quickly what species is that we can hear oh it just stopped oh that 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 one that one there yeah the the irony is that because i'm a i'm a plant person in bird life i don't really know my bird oh. <laughs> i I've but caught I, you <laughs> out <laughs> and and if i say something i hope the bird life people in my uh, right. not, will not call me out for saying the wrong species but i think it's a cuckoo okay okay all right we'll go with cuckoo all right we, we can't yeah. see it so maybe that, that's you off the hook but no uh, but and i mean the bird life people the people who like right. birds they're going to definitely hear it and say oh that's that <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Lahiri, where can people follow you and uh, find your work? Uh, I'm on Instagram uh, as uh, Lahiru X, I think, and uh, and and LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll put all your links in the description so people can. Uh, oh, thank you so you. much. All right, Lahiru, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for everything, Jack.